Twitter's impact in society is certainly bigger than how it shows up from a you know profit and loss and from a market cap perspective. And when you look at you know where Twitter is trading today, it's trading at a fraction of where like a Facebook or, or even like a Snapchat is, I think, at this point. And so the question becomes, you know, from an investment perspective, like do you think, you know, with some changes, you could create meaningful value in, in Twitter and that platform? Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. All right, today we got my guy, Tarek Brooks, who's the president of Combs Enterprise. Second time on the podcast. Great to have you back, man. Happy New Year, my brother. Great to be back. So what's the latest from the House of Combs? <laughs> hey man, look, th- things are wonderful at Combs Enterprises, man. We, we had a tremendous 2022 uh, where we did a lot of investing in our existing platforms and in new platforms. And so, you know, the big push in 23 is to operationalize and grow a lot of those new platforms. You know, a lot of people are familiar with the, the cannabis deal, which we announced late last year. We're going to close that deal and get that operational. We've also been working on an e-commerce platform with Salesforce. I'm calling Power Global. That will launch this year. Um, you know, Puff released music last year that did great. I mean, he and his son Christian, you know, were the first father and son duo to be number one at the same time. There'll be more projects from Love Records coming this year. So a lot of new things are made in 23. So we're on the cusp of a lot of exciting developments. And I feel like one of the strengths for him whenever he's launching a new brand is being able to find some type of synergy between something that he's done that's already worked and finding some way to tie it all together. And for you, I know you've been there for a couple of years now. Is there like one company or one tie-in that really stands out about, oh yeah, what Puff was able to do here, tweak the formula a little bit, brought it over to this company, and then it helped that one too? Yeah, it's interesting, man, because, you know, with the ecosystem we have, that there are synergies all over the place that we work hard to exploit every day. What I'll tell you, the bigger thing is that underneath our ecosystem sits a core premise, a core belief that our culture drives culture, that our people drive what's cool and what's next and what's hot in a meaningful way. So, you know, you go back to blues and jazz and rock and roll to hip hop, TikTok viral dances, like our people drive that. And so if you look at all of the different elements in our ecosystem, what you see are different sectors that we drive through our cultural presence. And so when you look at our platform through that lens, you see how they all fit together. So then synergies just become finding places where, you know, we can work together to make one plus one equal three or four, right? And so like, you know, easy examples, when you think about how, you know, our brands will show up at the Revolt Summit. So Revolt hosts this amazing event every year in Atlanta, 10,000 people come. It gives us an opportunity to, kind of have Revolt touch the people, but also have Ciroc and De Leon touch the people for us to do research for new companies that we're developing. The test concepts, these are ways that, that we don't play fair with our ecosystem. I mean, I look at a great example where De Leon Tequila used Drewski in an ad, you know, super funny guy, did a tremendous job with the ad. We then, you know, connected him with the team at Revolt and he did something with Revolt that ended up being a great, great opportunity there. So 
like throughout our ecosystem, you see all of these opportunities that exist with our portfolio companies and with the companies that we invest in passively. When we think about how we invest in companies, you know, part of it is all the stuff you would expect from any traditional investment vehicle. You know, do you have great leadership? Do you have a strong disruptive concept? But what we also think about is are there two or three ways that this thing could be utilized in our ecosystem to produce outsized impact for the company and for us as well? So it's an everyday activity, you know, finding and exploiting and developing those synergies. You mentioned earlier about the Revolt Summit and how that can be test space for whether it's new products or new things. Can you talk more about that? Because I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, this past Revolt Summit, the team at Empower Global, which is the e-commerce platform that I just mentioned, had space set up where they could introduce the concept to, to the participants at the Revolt Summit. And more than that, we actually had, and it was, I got to find you a picture of this thing, a digital vending machine that was filled with Black-owned products. So kind of like what you would see at the airport where you have vending machines with kind of you know, non-typical vending machine products, you know, headphones, different things like that. Our vending machine that we had set up in the Revolt Summit was all filled with products that were kind of owned by Black, that came from Black-owned companies. And so that was like a, just a real example where in that moment, we were able to introduce people to the concept of the platform, try out some new tech, and get real-time feedback from, from people who we believe will be a part of that target market. That makes sense. Yeah. Because if you want to have people that are first bought in, you get the people there. And I think the people that are going to attend Revolt Summit likely end up being culture shapers or mavens within their particular area themselves. They start saying something's good and then they can, you know, go back and that's how you're able to spread things. 100%. It's the way, you know, everybody talks about it in terms of synergy, but we like to talk about it in terms of not playing fair, right? Like we have these resources, we have these brands that mean something to people. You know, the, the most impactful thing we can do is find out how putting those brands together at different times in different ways produces more information, produces more insight, produces more, you know, revenue generation opportunity than any of those entities in silos. So for me, like the silo is the enemy, right? Like the key is to have all of our leaders and all of our team members continuously engaging in a very fluid way. Yeah. The one that always stuck out to me too was Ciroc and the on the ground promotion for that, because there are so many through lines going back to the bad boy days, the bad boy street team, and then the Ciroc boys. It's very similar playbook and being able to help push that. Yeah. I mean, look, and again, the playbook is the same as to say, you know, when you, when you look at what the spirits industry looked at at the time, it was very different from today. You know, a lot of folks don't realize at that time, the only people really trying to market to you know, black people in the hip with malt liquor, right? And so for us being able to, for Puff, because I, you know, I wasn't on the team back then, but what I can tell you is he looked at how nightlife worked and how the culture was working and evolving and saw a huge opportunity for an aspirational luxury product and then was able to apply a lot of the same tools that were driving his success in the music business in spirits. And so that's how you end up with us showing up better than most people in the nightlife, us being able to have the Ciroc DJs, you know, be a part of our experience because Huff knew back then, which he knows now, how powerful DJs are in the culture and in the communities they live in. Uh, and if you look at even now, like a lot of, you know, what he's he's posted socially as he's, you know, driven the efforts around Love Records was like respect the DJ. Like, like, like yeah, we get what algorithms can do, but understand like DJs are culturally important. Like they mean something to their communities and they mean something in our culture. 
And in that way, they have outsized influence that, that I think people still don't underestimate. Yeah, I think as much as things have been moving streaming or nfts or whatever it is people still want to go to the club and people still want to be in the hands of a dj that knows what they're doing and can introduce them uh, absolutely there is power in curation right and and look and, and you know theoretically ai will be able to kind of take that inputs and lead curations that, that that are solid but you know it is it is tough to replicate you know instincts and and the natural art you know, that's, that's the thing, right? Like, like to, to be able to think you can do it with just an algorithm means it's all science. And I think, you know, most entertainment industries, particularly when you talk about the power of a DJ is art and science together. And that art is that intuitive thing that like, you know, some folks just have. They know when to play the right record, you know, not just because it's similar BPM, but they know because they know that crowd, they know that venue, they know that audience better than most other people. Definitely. And I think too, a lot of that we definitely saw with the Ciroc playbook, but I want to spend some time in this conversation talking a bit more about daily owned, because I think that that is relatively newer business for their portfolio, but I think there's a lot that's similar, but a lot that's different too, in terms of how you've all rolled it out, what you've done, how you've done things differently. So love to start there and maybe start first specifically, how much of the Ciroc playbook was used with what you've all done so far with daily on yeah so i think the core premise stays the same right what what puff has been amazing at throughout his career is being able to spot and help develop trends very early and he saw back in 2013 2014 that the next wave in spirits was, was going to be about you know brown spirits in particular tequila and so when he he formed the joint venture with biagi and with build that he built that knowing that a tequila wave was coming. Now, from the perspective of how industries develop, tequila and vodka are two very different places, right? Vodka is very big, very mature, right now trying to fight off the growth of some of the spirits that are taking customers away, whereas tequila is smaller but fast growing. And it's also very nuanced. So like when you think about what we've been able to do driving Deleon's growth, and Deleon right now is the fastest growing tequila in the country, right? It is, it is, it is on fire right now. It just, you know, Small plug, you, know, you are new to tequila. Deleon, Reposado, Deleon, Añejo are absolutely amazing. I will put them against any tequila that's out there. You know, so smooth, ice cube, orange slice, you're good to go. But um, any numbers to share in terms of like cases sold or anything like that? So, so, so look, I'm not going to go into details on cases sold, but again, this is Nielsen data. So it's not, this is not from, yeah. from TAR, right? So, so, you know. But right now, it, you look, it, it is it is on fire. We have, it's triple digit growth right now. Is what I'm what I'm what I'm you know comfortable with kind of disclosing. But what I would say is, um, you know, part of the Deleon story is making sure Deleon is relevant in culture. You know, so when you when you hear them in when you hear Deleon and Lemonade in the Young Miami song, sure when when you see Deleon on drink camps, when you see Deleon show up in these things, it's a part of ensuring Deleon is relevant in the culture and shows up the right way. But there's also a big part of the future of Deleon that we're talking about the, the liquid itself, you know, how, how we get to such a high quality liquid. The fact that Deleon is aged in both American whiskey and French red wine barrels to get the distinctive taste that I like. That's just part of the story that we're still just beginning to tell and roll out as we build it. And from our view, we are building 
you know, iconic, long-lasting brand. We want Deleon to be thought of the same way you think about Johnny Walker or Hennessy or any other great brands that are out there. And so our view is like you, you don't rush that thing. You develop that story over time. You feed people in. You bring people into the brand, and then you culture that. And you cultivate that audience. You know, as it grows. And so you know, a lot of the, the kind of principles that we've applied in growing Ciroc, we're applying to Deleon, but we're also being very aware that you know. Vodka and tequila are very different liquids. They're developed different ways. The drinking occasions aren't exactly the same. And you think about that as you start to position the brand on board. Yeah, because I think that was a good point that you mentioned just in terms of how vodka has been market leader just from a type of liquor for so long. So you didn't necessarily have to do that piece of it, but it was more so, yeah, how do you bring this brand that I think some people just may have forgotten about, but bring it to the same level as your Great Gooses and your others? Yeah, this, people didn't know people. I mean, look, the, the way Ciroc had previously been positioned hadn't been positioned in a way that was creating a lot of noise, a lot of impact. And I think, you know, part of Puff's genius was figuring out that it was amazing juice. It was amazing liquid, beautiful bottles. So if you position it the right way in culture, you could create a wave. And that wave has been historic. Puff got in, involved with, with, uh, with, with Ciroc. This was a brand that was doing, you know, 50,000, 70,000 cases annually. Now this is a two million plus case brand globally, right? So this is a, a huge, huge brand in the spirits industry. In a in a sector that was big, vodka is a very, very big sector. Tequila, we're growing Delion as the sector is growing as well. So it's just again from a marketing perspective, a different set of challenges, but the same principles apply to how we think about leveraging culture, leveraging you know you know our ability to kind of set trends to help drive and create a meaningful brand. But it all also starts with a great quality liquid. That, that we stand by. I mean, one of the right, things, but- yeah, I, I think one of the things Puff has always been super consistent about is the authenticity around like standing behind the products he brings to market. You know, there's not a there's not a variant of Delion or a flavor of Ciroc that gets released without Puff personally stamping that saying, you know, this is this is okay to go to market with our name on. Right. Yeah, because I think the the distinction too on the flip side with tequila is like not even that it's so much education because I think a lot of people know tequila, but just getting the consumer a bit of a visual of yes this is the setting where not just our brand but this broader aspect and i know there's 1800 and there's like others too but like you all be able to be like hey like this is where and so some of that what i think works so well for Siraj, just in terms of thinking back to those like vegas uh, promo shots where they had all the people there being able to you know have whatever the the tequila and daily own equivalent is yeah i mean look i think a part of the tequila growth story is helping people understand that, you know, while they may have been introduced to tequila, you know, with shots on the spring break or something like that, it's actually, you know, once you learn more, you learn it's a much more complex liquid that can be enjoyed a lot of different ways, mixed drinks, meat, you know, over on the rocks, you know, and then all the other kinds of occasions. So I think part of our experience is helping people understand that its versatility is part of why it's, it's growing as fast as it's growing. Yeah. And I think, too, just thinking more broadly about spirits and things that people enjoy, you all now going into cannabis, I think that there are definitely some similarities there. People want to be able to relax and imbibe with what they choose, but so different in terms of not just regulation, but the culture. How has it been just, I know, even thinking about the origins of that deal, how some of that playbook and mentality can be leveraged for what you all have now with this massive opportunity in cannabis? Yeah, I mean, look, 
they are certainly two categories that are at very different stages, but you know, you could argue they've been on similar journeys, right? Like there was a point in time when when alcohol was was prohibited. And when you look at the history of cannabis, you know, you you start to realize a lot of the way this product category was treated was less around the specific impact of the product and more around the specific influence, the culture that was around it. You know, you know, before that was hip hop. Cannabis was huge in the jazz community, and the jazz community was something that Black people were bringing and spreading throughout the United States in a meaningful way and having, you know, real impact culturally. And there were folks that didn't want to see that happen. And so part of the, the, the criminalization of cannabis was connected to slowing down the influence of, of that jazz, that Black culture. And so you've seen over the past however many years it's been that cannabis has been illegal, you know, the disproportionate criminalization of, of, of Black people as it relates to cannabis than, than white people. And so this opportunity is an opportunity that gives us a chance to basically through doing good, sound business, you know, rights and historical wrongs. When you look at the last 10 years of legal cannabis, despite, you know, the over-criminalization of Black people, it is dominated by white men. You know, 85, 86% owned by white men. Black people only own 2% of the space. And so for us, particularly coming in this way, it gives us an opportunity to kind of make change and enter the business at scale, to be able to come in with a three-state footprint and be able to use that as a platform to help change the cannabis ecosystem, to make sure we use our platform to enable black and brown people to participate in the industry in a number of different ways, to be able to use our voice, to be able to help shape the way regulators and lawmakers think about how cannabis needs to be developed going forward, and continue to do what we do at our core, which is bring our audience great quality product for them to enjoy responsibly. That makes sense. And I do think that those stats you mentioned just around the 2% of the business that is only being, at least at this point, currently run and administered by Black people. And that's in America, right? In, in America. And in, 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 in the U.S. is going to continue to be a leader in, in global cannabis. So a lot of countries look to see, you know, what the what the US is doing and how they're thinking about deregulation and how they shape their rules. And and for us, a big part of what we do is helping people to see how the way things are set up negatively impact our community disproportionately. Right. So when you look at, you know, the cannabis industry broadly working to change the way cannabis is scheduled by the federal government and how it's treated by the federal government and how banks are able to interact with cannabis companies. All of those things make it hard for the industry broadly, but it makes it extra hard for us because when you look at industries without those barriers, we don't get the same access to capital. We don't get the same access to opportunities. So it's one of those things where, you know, once again, we're starting from behind the eight ball, but what our, you know, perspective allows us to do is start from a different vantage point, right? Like it is an extremely difficult time broadly to raise money in cannabis. And so for us to be able to pull off something this big speaks to, you know, the success that and track record that Puff has had building quality brands, building quality companies and being able to find the kind of talent you need to come in and create value. And so we're excited, man. We, we, we think this is going to be a huge event for the cannabis industry. We think it's going to be a huge event for uh, us to help our community create meaningful wealth. Because ultimately, you know, as business people, we want to use our skills and, and resources to create wealth for our community. Yeah. And like you said, definitely, you know, huge undertaking to make this happen. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit more about some of the steps to get from the first idea? Maybe it's you and Puff talking about, hey, you know, we should do this. We should get into this business to then, boom, the announcement comes. Like, yeah. what were some of the steps so, to help so, make, make so we, we have been, you know, we have been exploring the cannabis industry, you know, with differing levels of intensity since about 2017, looking at opportunities, starting to understand how the industry works, getting closer and closer to the space, you know, you know building relationships with entrepreneurs and companies in the space to, to kind of understand how things develop. I joined the board of Presco Labs, you know, one, because I wanted to learn more about the industry. I thought they were a great company. But two, from that vantage point, you were able to see how industry works and how things develop. And so when this opportunity came along, which is really driven by acquisition of Columbia Care by Presco, they, they by regulation have to divest assets, this opportunity to look at a portfolio of assets that are good you know, good, strong businesses, generating revenue, generating cash flow today to be able to kind of bring those into our portfolio and then do what we do to create meaningful brands around those assets seemed like a, a phenomenal opportunity. And so, look, these things take time to develop and, and, and it's a long process of, of, you know, doing the due diligence, raising the capital, going through all the steps you have to do to actually close a deal. But we believe it's going to be a phenomenal historic deal once it's, once it's closed and we're able to operate it. And we think, like, look, when you look at Puff's track record of building brands in music, in fashion, in spirits, you know, should extend, we believe it's going to extend itself to cannabis in a meaningful way, given how influential and impactful cannabis is in culture. And we definitely know that there are a lot of regulatory challenges in this space, for sure. And I also know that there are several other celebrity investors, even some in hip hop that have started businesses in this space and haven't necessarily been able to help take them to the next level. Do you have thought on what some of those, I guess, how your business now moving forward can help address and overcome some of those hurdles that maybe some others weren't quite able to get past? Yeah. So, so I take those in pieces. What I would say is, you know, we believe over the long term, the federal view on cannabis will change. We believe cannabis will ultimately eventually be legal, you know, throughout the United States and in all 50 states, but we don't know when that's going to happen. And so none of our investment thesis, none of our modeling, none of our business case was built on imminent regulatory relief. And so while, you know, we, we hope for it and we want to help shape how lawmakers think about it the same way the rest of the industry does. Nothing in our core premise for doing this deal was built on the expectation of regulatory relief this year, next year, five years from now, right? So that's the one thing I would say. There. That said, we want to be immediately a part of the conversation because cannabis is so connected to our community. And so we're going to jump into that conversation at the state level. We're going to jump into that conversation at the national level. Now, going to the second part of your question, you know, one of the things I think is the biggest, you know, misnomer when people think about, you know, Sean Combs entering cannabis is thinking about this as a celebrity cannabis deal, right? When, when I think about this and when Puff and I have always talked about it, what we think about is, you know, a guy with an amazing track record of building culturally relevant brands. Is that relevant in cannabis? Yes. Check. <laughs> right. You know, does he have resources and platform to be able to raise the capital to do a deal like this? Check. Does he have the ability to attract the kind of talent you need? Check. Right. Now, you also then say, is his celebrity extremely valuable in getting the word out, brilliant? 
Absolutely. But that's not the core premise of what we're trying to do, right? Like we will get as much value through all the things we can learn throughout our ecosystem and how our customers and all of our other businesses think about cannabis as we'll get from Sean Cohen, the celebrity, right? And so from that perspective, you know, we don't expect to have our business be a celebrity driven brand per se. It's going to be built on the back of great brand building, great marketing and very strategic and efficient operations. And I think that ties into something you had said in a recent interview about how insights from Revolt, for instance, can inform some of the decisions that you make with the cannabis business. Yeah, I mean, look, when you think about an ecosystem like ours that spans from spirits, music, media, fashion, with every interaction with our audience, you create data, right? So every time posts posts go up from Puff on their social media, you know, there's data that comes back. Every Ciroc transaction generates data. When Revolt has shows on all the different platforms that has shows, cable, YouTube, you know, in-app, all those different platforms generate data. As you compile that data, you're able to kind of look at it with a different lens and, and pull insights from that. What we're then able to do is take the data that we get from the cannabis industry that everybody else in cannabis is getting. But when you start putting those things together in unique ways, that's how you start to generate interesting insights that everybody's just not going to have access to. So that's where we think, again, we have a real competitive advantage in how we think about what we do in the space. And that ranges from every, that, that'll impact everything from, you know, how our stores look and feel and what that experience will be, what products we lead with, how we think about price points, how we change things from state to state. A lot of that will be driven by insights that not only come from the cannabis industry, but that are informed by the other businesses in our portfolio. And this steps into, I think, a broader conversation of some of the categorization of someone like Puff and the work that he does in that the media can often put him alongside other people who have happened to be a recording artist on a track and compare their business ventures in the same way. And what you're essentially saying is, hey, you can't compare us all the same way. Did they build a revolt? Did they build a Ciroc? Did they build a Sean John? It's, today? It's, it's so hard because it's like, I don't want to deny how impactful he is as a celebrity and as an entertainer. He's one of the best, right? Like, you know, like, like when you think about the catalog of music, when you think about his epic performances, when you think about, and not just performances in music, performances in movies, performances on Broadway, like the, the guy is like, you know, quintessential entertainer, you know, by all means, like you can't argue that. But I think when you try to look at him narrowly as just that, you are really missing the picture because I think that underestimates or or understates how difficult it is to build Bad Boy Records into a success, to build Sean John into a success, to build a revolt, to build a Ciroc, to build a Deleon, to build three schools. Like, Like that. that's not just on the back of him being an amazing entertainer. Right. Like that speaks to his business instincts, his ability to spot trends, his ability to kind of find and cultivate talent. Like those are all things that are universal in business. Leave aside what he's been able to do as as an entertainer. I would argue had he never got on the mic or touched the stage, he would have been just as successful a business person just on the back of his business, you know, acumen and abilities. And so that's where when we're in these conversations and people think about, you know, in cannabis, this come up recently, people say like, well, you know, celebrity brands haven't really worked. And I'm like, let me take a second to help you understand why this is not, this is different from a celebrity brand opportunity. The other thing that's different that I think is important for people to understand is when we take control of these assets, we will be fully vertically integrated in 
in the states that we operate, which means we are going to cultivate, we have a process, we have a manufacturer, we're going to distribute, we're going to sell. So like these are all pieces of the business value chain that, that we will operate. Again, not so relevant from the celebrity space. This is all around how do you build and run high quality businesses? And that's where I think you have to look at our business portfolio to understand how impactful Puff has been throughout his career. And you just don't see those things that the only lens you're looking at is through him as the celebrity entertainer. I could see this topic also coming up in some ways, potentially from an investment perspective where you all have companies that are trying to either get you to invest or you're evaluating them. And at some point, someone on the other side of the table may come to you and be like, hey, well, if you invest in us, can we get a shout out in a song? Can we get an Instagram <laughs> post? Can we do this? Like these things that view Puff as the influencer, as opposed to the business leader that has all of these things. Yeah. What I found just in my experience, Bob, and I've been working with Puff almost six years now, most of it typically comes with how people were introduced to them and, and the depth or, or lack thereof of their understanding of what he's been able to do throughout his career. There's a lot of stuff, you know, people just don't know or don't necessarily, you know, attribute to him in the way they in, in the way they should. And so usually that journey is one where it's about informing people to say, like, let's make sure you have all the perspective and then think about kind of how this can make sense. Because again, there's no denying his impact and influence as a celebrity. He's huge. Like he's a he's a he's a big name. He's an iconic person in, in, in culture. But I think to only think about him that way too narrow. I think, I think when people start to understand, you know, what working with Combs Enterprises means more broadly, you start to understand the power of the platform that we really have. And that's where I think it gets really exciting for the people who get it. Yeah, I agree. That makes sense. From a, from an investment perspective specifically though, do you feel like, is that something that often needs to be addressed with startups or with founders or others that may be, whether deep down, they may be looking for something and I'm more so asking that in a way because I've seen it happen to others. And I, and given this conversation, I can see that especially being somewhat frustrating where it's like, hey, I hope you're not just interested in this to think you're going to get a shout out. Yeah. I mean, so look, I'll tell you when, when we are evaluating investment opportunities and people are looking at ideals, I, I don't think that is a thing that people are using as their primary driver. Do I think there are people who will, will be uh, like a, a nice to have? Do they hope to get to be them? Do they hope to get all those? Like, sure, right? Like, like they're, they're, again, he holds a very special place in culture. So there's no denying that people get excited about that there's a chance to meet them or take a picture with them, all those kinds of things. But I think when, when, when we get to, you know, evaluating real deals, I think one thing that surprises people is the, the rigor with which we do our diligence and our analysis, right? And so that's the first thing you see to say like, well, this, this is not just, you know, high level celebrity thing. This is, this is being looked at with real deep due diligence and real deep analysis. And I think from there, it starts to shake away the, 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 the that kind of filter of, oh, oh I'm going to try to just get a celebrity deal done because it's just not the way we do business. And I, I think people get that really quickly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially from if you're, there's a diligence process they're seeing on their side. And maybe we could talk a little bit more about that, like from a high level for a lot of the investments you do, maybe less like the, cannabis deals, but more on the venture side. Do you have a particular sweet spot in terms of, you know, this is normally the dollar amount range, or this is normally what we 
put in or this is normally what we're looking for? So so we we have you know flexibility, right? We're, we're not we're not a fund that has to you know stick to a certain sector or a certain stage of growth the way you know funds are typically mandated to do. So we do have flexibility, but that said, going back to the earlier comment I was making, we tend to look at businesses where we see some application at places within our current portfolio, right? So like I don't know that you'll ever see us do like, you know, some like heavy machinery deals or, or, you know, enterprise software, things like that, because that's not our natural sweet spot. When you look at things that kind of interface with the businesses we operate in, it becomes a lot more interesting for us. And so while we apply, you know, the very standard kind of ways of assessing, a, you know, the quality of the leadership team. The, the uniqueness of the opportunity, how defensible we think the opportunity is, the total addressable market, and how big the opportunity ultimately be. We look at all those things, just like every other you know person who investigates an opportunity does. I think where it gets unique is for us. Once we've gone through all that, we then sit back and say, okay, you know, how many of our businesses could actually utilize this offering? You know, how many different places do we think we can use this throughout our portfolio in a way as well? And then it starts to become even more interesting. So. That, that's kind of how we get there. Now, to be clear, like we don't have a, a hard mandate or a set of funds we have to put the work in the way a fund does. And so we tend to be very, very opportunistic. Um, and in that way, we're able to kind of pick and choose what we want to do very carefully because we don't, we don't have a mandate where we're forced to be investing. So as we see economic conditions change, as we see market conditions change, we're able to just say like, all right, let's just let's take a step back. Let's wait and see how things play out. And I think that's helped. I mean, it helped us avoid, you know, you know, some of the, the, the kind of frustrations some folks are seeing in kind of Web3 and, and cryptocurrency world because we didn't have a, we weren't forced to go aggressively do something too fast. We took our time and then we saw how the market was evolving. And so we were able to take a step back and, and continue to evaluate. And so from that perspective, there's a lot of flexibility. there. Yeah. That makes sense, especially given that, yeah, there's no fun mandate. So it's not like you're burned because of the, like, you know, there's a winter or something like that. Absolutely. And the, the reality is too, we're always investing in our core portfolio as well, right? So we think about whether we want to put a couple million dollars into, you know, a startup passively. Part of the, the, the kind of analysis is to say, well, where could we deploy it in our current portfolio and does that make more sense, right? And so. There's that kind of ebb and flow of how we think about deals as well. Yeah, that makes sense. A couple of months ago, there were headlines that Puff had apparently done an investment in Twitter around the time that Elon Musk had. Was that actually a thing, or did that <laughs> come through? Or <laughs> look, so like Puff, Puff and Elon like have have a relationship. You know, tw Twitter is a, a very interesting situation in that when you look at you know, the, the, the side, like Twitter's impact in society is certainly bigger than how it shows up from a, you know, profit and loss and from a market cap perspective. And when you look at, you know, where Twitter is trading today, it's trading at a fraction of where like a Facebook or, or even like a Snapchat is, I think, at this point. And so the question becomes, you know, from an investment perspective, like, do you think, you know, with some changes, you could create meaningful value in, in Twitter, that platform? And so I, I think, while you know the, the the kind of the kind of statements in the press were overstated, there was a there was a small investment in Twitter, but it's nothing nothing like what people were reporting. Like I think you know people get pieces of information and run, so we just you know we we, we kind of sit back and stay silent on those things. Yeah, and I think the way you framed it is correct, right? I think it's definitely one of the 
for a $40 billion company creates more headlines than most other $44 billion companies we could probably even think of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and so when you think about, you know, its impact, like it has the potential, like with with some decisions to be a much more valuable company than it is today. And and the verdict's still out. Like we're watching those changes happen in real time. And because of how, you know, big the platform is in society, you know, you're seeing those things play out in the press. And, you know, know, I'm sure Elon's camp is is, is trying to work as methodically as they can through those changes as they they figure out what, what, what is the right, you know, kind of end state for, for that platform. Yeah, definitely. The other side of the investment piece, of course, I think we talked a lot about Combs Enterprise deployment capital, but on the other side of it too, thinking specifically about everything happening in music catalogs over the past couple of years, everyone wants these valuable catalogs with these timeless music. Combs has one of the most valuable hip hop, R&B, black music catalogs of the past 30 years with Bad Boy Records and there hasn't been any public news about any sales, but I am sure that people must have been calling nonstop trying to at least see what they could get in there. What were those conversations like? I'm sure at some point it must have came up of whether it's running the numbers or even thinking through like, what would this look like? Yeah, well, look, I think as, as you know, like part of the, the interest in these catalogs is driven by the fact that, you know, the returns they generate aren't really correlated to the market, right? Like, like if you have a, you know, a, a high quality performing catalog is going to generate returns and generate cash flow, irrespective of the ups and downs of the markets. And so that's attractive to investors. That said, for those same reasons, it's attractive to us, right? Like it, it, it is a great quality, high performing catalog. And for us, part of how, you know, we think about things, we think about like Puff's long-term vision, right? Like we're getting back into, he's getting back into music now with Love Records and, and you know, he's going to build that platform in the way that makes sense as you think about the way culture and the music industry continues to evolve. And for us, we weren't, we're in no rush to get rid of portfolio that could be a part of that. Like who, who knows how you think about those assets in the, in, in the future. And so for us, we're spending a lot of time thinking about what the future of music is going to look like and you know how Puff is going to participate in that, what that looks like. And so for us, you know, again, you don't have you know, some of the time constraints that you get from being a public company or being in a fund where you have to return, you know, money at a certain time. So we have the benefit of being able to go slow and, and, and kind of take our time and, and basically run experiments at our own pace to figure out what we want to do. So from that perspective, people have, you know, continually come through with, with offers and with opportunities and things. And we purposely taken our time as we've thought about what you know, Puff's experience in music is going to be over the next, you know, next thirty years as he as he climbs what he talks about as his second mountain, right? Like he's 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 at the point of his career where he's accomplished a ton. And he's thinking about what that second mountain looks like. Music has always been a very important part of his life, and so music is going to be a part of that second mountain. But we're still shaping what that looks like. And so, from our perspective, there was no reason, there is no reason to to, to, to move hastily. That makes a lot of sense. And I think for you, there's two things that are different with you all compared to some of the others, two of them you touched on. But one of them is that you already have the infrastructure in place on how to do things that can help maximize the asset of the Bad Boy Records catalog. It isn't like one of these situations like where the Whitney Houston catalog, like it was dormant before Primary Wave came in. And obviously they've like, you know, forexed it since acquiring it three years ago. And it isn't like one of these other legacy artists that 
you know, the estate may be in shambles and things just aren't lined up. And yeah, for them, it probably makes sense to just get a lump sum of, sum of money and be able to distribute that instead of hoping that your relatives who may not be trained in managing this type of asset can continue doing it forward. Like you all have that. And I think that's yeah, part yeah. of it. And I, and I think, I think, I mean, there's a couple of ways to think about it too, right? Like, Cause I've thought, you know, these artists work so hard to create these assets, you know, why sell them? Why, why, why get rid of them? But I think there's a couple ways you can think about it. You can say one, all right, we may be at peak pricing. And so it's like, you know what, let me, let me sell while things are hot you know, take the cash, be able to take the money off the table and, and invest in other ways, diversify kind of thing. You also have to think with younger artists to say, all right, I'll sell this catalog, but if I'm still creating, I can continue to create and build, you know, build new new works that, that, that will create value as well. And so I think it's, I think there's different logic for different artists in terms of, you know, why they think about selling and why they sell when they do that, that, you know, in some respect can make a lot of sense, particularly if you're looking at it from a, you know, purely financial perspective. But again, for us, we're, we're unique in the way that we, we have an ecosystem that helps continue to keep the, the catalog relevant. We're, we're back in music now. And so, again, that also helps to create the halo effect across all of our ecosystem. And so, and so for us, there just, there just really isn't a rush to move too quickly. Like where, where we can think about what is the, the kind of value maximizing way to utilize the catalog and whatever else we're doing to create the best outcomes. Right. I, th I think that's a good way to put it too, because like you said, the numbers are there. And if you want to sell, there are sound financial reasons that someone may choose to do so for you all. And given Puff's current goals in music, it just may not make the most yep. sense. But exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so yeah, yeah, with that though, shifting gears a bit, one business we haven't talked a lot about is Sean John. And I know this is a business that the team had sold a couple of years back, the company that bought it, things didn't quite work out there. You all then bought it back recently. So where are things right now with Sean Sean? Yeah, Sean Sean is, is, is super exciting, right? So, you know, first starts with the fact that it is an iconic, you know, streetwear clothing brand, right? You know, this is, again, another example of Puff being able to see where fashion was going, seeing how, you know, folks in our community were wearing other brands to get particular silhouettes and have it, you know, look a certain way and feel a certain way and then be able to build a brand that became a real, like, foundational piece of, you know, hip-hop culture. Um, and through that process, Puff was the first African-American man to win the CDFA award, which is the biggest award you can win in fashion, right? So truly iconic. Sold the brand. The buyers at the time weren't able to figure out how to maximize it. So it created the opportunity for us to buy it back. And so what we're excited to do now, and when we're in this process with Puff, are really reimagining what Sean John can and should be for this generation, right? Like as much as, you know, we all love the iconic velour sweatsuits and all the rest of it, like maybe that's a part of the future. Maybe it's a different brand position, a different way, but like spending the time actually really ideate on that and get to the right concept to bring it back again. We have the benefit because we, you know, we operate this portfolio. We don't have the pressure to rush. Like we don't have to, you know, do something right away to be able to kind of, you know, capture that value overnight. You know, we have the luxury of being able to take our time. And what, what I found with, with, with Puff is he likes to be able to, one, work with the best quality people he possibly can and, and really run ideas through the ring in terms of, you know, having, you know, people question his logic, test the, the thinking, really, really pressure test to see if it's the right way before we do something. So, but what I can say is, 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 is 
But right now in the lab, like, you know, there, there's there's creative folks that are thinking through, you know, what Sean John could be and should be, and, and Puff is engaged in that process. And so it's exciting. I think I think when when we do hit back on the market, we're going to come back in a way that one pays homage to the legacy of Sean John, but then isn't just caught up in what it used to be. Is really thinking about what the brand could mean and should mean to you know new generations of our customers. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like when it happened too, it definitely generated some excitement. So I feel like there's some good moments. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I think a lot of the the folks who are dominating the the fashion world now were inspired, you know, by Sean John, and you know, were fans of Sean John when they when they were when they were younger. And so the fact that it's a brand that is still you know relevant to people in different ways gives us a great building. Like like to me, I, I would rather be trying to kind of help people connect to this brand with so much history and legacy than trying to build a brand from scratch. You know, I, I think it provides a good foundation. Because again, like Puff's aspiration is to build iconic, long-lasting brands. So when you think about those like iconic brands that have been around for 50, 75, you know, those long period of time, that's what the goal is. And so, and those brands have gone through, if you, if you do any research, you know, any iconic brands have gone through periods of, of, of kind of lulls and growth. And so for us, this is just really, you know, the second chapter of something that's that's going to, you know, be a part of our community and our culture for years to come. Yeah, for sure. And for you specifically, if we zoom out a bit, looking at the past six years since you've been there, we definitely talked a lot about a lot of the wins, a lot of the successes. But are there any setbacks or is there any missed opportunities that you look back, especially the past six years since you've been there, being like, oh, I wonder if we did this differently with this brand. I wonder if we did that differently. Yeah, I, th I think for us, one of the things I, I appreciate about Puff, and, and it's some, it's a value that we both share, which is, you know, you look at everything as like a learning opportunity to say like, maybe the outcome didn't go your way, but there was plenty of stuff you could learn from it if you embrace the opportunity the right way. So like, I look at the fact, like this was back in 2018 when Puff was on, I think he was on Instagram, we announced that we were going to go after and buy the Carolina Panthers. Um, you know, super exciting opportunity. We saw the value of the team and the value of the assets all around the team, you know, thought it was a great opportunity, pursued it, you know, the, the group that we were part of didn't win, but through that process, learned a ton about that space, you know, met great people, you know, business partners and relationships that we still engage with in different things today, all came from that opportunity. So like, you know, while, look, I would have loved to be able to win that deal and bring that home, you know, I think there's a lot that comes from it. It sets us up for, for the things we do in the future. You know, when I think about, maybe um, we talked about the Revolt Summit earlier, right? Like, you know, as we were building the Revolt Summit, you know, 2019, we bring it back after, uh, I think, a year off. And then in 2020, the pandemic hit. So we got to basically shut it down and go virtual. But like coming out of that was things we learned about how we're going to embrace in the future. So this year, you know, was the biggest Revolt Summit ever. When we think about how it's growing in the future, there are likely going to be metaverse elements to it. The fact that we now can think about things we'll do in person versus online, like all those things coming right again, learnings that you utilize going forward. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, thinking through every single flavor in the Ciroc portfolio or every single battle in the artist roster, even the ones that don't work out the way, you know, you want them to work out, there's stuff you can learn from that help impact and help you have to be better as you move forward. And that's, that's the way we embrace it. I think, you know, Puff and I talk all the time about just, you know, transparently looking at the things that go right and go wrong and making sure we're learning that. Can we actually talk a little bit about the Carolina Panthers one specifically? Because I know you all said that you didn't win the 
the the bid, but was it an aspect of being outbid or the owners or someone just choosing someone different? Like, how did that all go down? Because I remember the headlines about it. I remember that there were a few other prominent, you know, black public figures that were in that ownership group too. Yeah, I mean, look, what I would say is, you know, the person that, you know, ended up winning the bid, that, you know, I believe if I remember correctly, had, you know, the highest bid and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, was able to, you know, take down the team with that. They, you know, he had a relationship with the NFL. And so I think from that perspective, he, he, he kind of knew the league uh, well and, and, and was, was prepared in a number of different ways to be able to take it down. And, and I would just say the group that we were a part of kind of fell short. But what's interesting is, you know, the number, and I just can't remember real time the, the exact number he ended up paying for it. When you look at the number that people think that the Washington Commanders is going to command, and the number that the Denver Broncos commanded, you know, while that in, that while that number he paid was high at the time, you know, it's it, it's it's not even half what somebody might pay for the Washington Commanders. And so, and so from I that know, perspective, right? you know, I think you know directionally. The, the, the bet was right, but it, but in any situation when you're trying to decide how much you're willing to pay for something, you got to live with the fact that there just may be somebody willing to pay more for it than you are, right? And so you know, at, we ended up being a part of a, a really sharp group that you know had thought really hard about you know what our upper limit was, and in this case, you know, we were we grounded. Were so you know, it, again, it's one of those things you learn from, right? Like you know, sports entertainment business is very unique. You know, assets, you know come available at different points in time. And, and it's all around thinking about, you know, what do you think the asset is worth? What do you think you can do with it? You know, to translate it to what you think it should be worth. And somewhere in that analysis, you get to what you think you should pay for, right? And, that, and, that, and that's where you kind of make the move. And in that case, you know, that, that we're just folks willing to pay more for it than our group was. Yeah. No, th- I think that's a good point too, because I feel like I might be misquoting, but I feel like the Panthers bid was somewhere, I think it was under $3 billion at yeah, least. Yeah, I, I believe you're right. I want to be careful. I just don't remember exactly, but yeah, I remember it being less than $3 billion, And I think the number they're saying for Washington Commanders now is like $7 billion. And so, yeah. and so, And so I imagine, you know, like when you, when you think about where the value of that Panthers investment is going, it's probably going up and you know, they probably done really well. So, I mean, and again, we and we believed it was going to do well and continue to do well. I mean, when you look at the size of the deal, I guess Google or YouTube just did with the NFL, it just shows the power of the NFL as a platform, right? When you look at, at least for the last couple of years, I haven't seen 2022, when you look at the list of the top 50 watched things on television every year, 40 plus of them are football games, right? <laughs> right? I mean, yep. It's just that powerful of an entertainment platform so therefore commands the the, the prices yeah well hopefully whether it's this group or some combination of others that we know we're interested hopefully we see something happen soon in the sports ownership space but but Tark, this was great i know we covered a bunch of topics in this one and before we let you go though is there anything that you didn't cover that the audience should stay looking out for or that we should be thinking about moving forward yeah i think I think 23 is a year that the audience should look out for a lot from from the Combs organization. You know, music out of Love Records, including Puff's album, Empower Global, e-commerce platform, kind of reimagining how, you know, Black people circulate dollars in our community. You know, the cannabis venture closing and, and beginning to build brands and establish meaningful footprints in the markets that it's in. There's just a lot of new things in, in, in 23. So there, there will be a lot coming out of our camp that we're super excited about. And so it's going to be a big year. We'll keep our lookout for that, man. 
All right. right. Appreciate you spending the time, man. Thanks so much, man. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Traffalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.